There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. everyone and welcome to this week's Squiggly Career Podcast. I'm Helen Tupper and this week I am not joined by the very lovely Sarah Ellis who is my partner in all things squiggly and all things amazing if. Instead today I am joined by one of our guests on the podcast. I'm joined by Emma Rosen. Hi thank you for having me this week. And I'll tell you lots more about Emma in a second but I should just say that Sarah and I have not had a big falling out. Amazing if is still continuing but one of the things that we wanted to do this year just to I guess a bit of variety on the podcast is to bring in some new voices and we thought, thought that three of us might be a bit overkill. So that started last month when Sarah was talking to Bruce Daisley. Hopefully you've had a listen to that podcast. And today I'll be talking to Emma all about her squiggly career, which is fascinating. I cannot wait to get into it. And we're going to be talking about um, some stuff on strengths, some stuff on confidence and networks as well. So lots of different amazing if topics covered all through the lens of Emma's career on the podcast this week. So Let's get straight into it then. I became aware of Emma because someone actually from, I think, our community said, have you seen Emma's new book, which is coming out, which was towards the end of last year. And Emma had a book that came out in January called 25 Under 25, and it's a radical sabbatical, and it's all about the 25 jobs that she did before she was 25. And I think it is as squiggly as someone could possibly get in their career. So maybe we'll start there. What inspired you, Emma, to do 25 jobs before you were 25? I think with these things, you tend to either be inspired by inspiration or desperation. Okay. (laughs) And I was definitely in the latter category, I would say. I was in a job that I really wasn't enjoying, but it was the sort of job that was meant to be my dream job. It was the sort of job I'd been aiming for for years and years and years. My degrees had been towards it. My parents were very proud of me. I was earning a good salary. It was a stable job. There was job security. There was a clear path of progression. It ticked all those boxes that I was looking for in a job. Except when I got there, I absolutely hated it. Yeah. Um, so I was working for government in the civil service. And this left me with a bit of an identity crisis, you could say. I think, in part, our careers can form part of our identity. When we introduce ourselves to a new person, we say what our name is and we say what we do for a living. And I had no idea what I wanted to do for a living, despite having spent you know, tens of thousands of pounds on going to university and having work experience and internships and building and building and building. And... I just didn't know what to do about it, to be honest. So I stayed in my job for for over a year until it got to a breaking point. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I sat down and just as a thought exercise, really, decided to write a list of all the different jobs I had ever wanted to do since childhood all the way up to kind of adulthood. Just off the top of my head, everything that I'd always wondered about, what if. Mm-hmm. And that list had 25 different jobs on it. And I was just about to turn 24 and... The idea of 25 before 25, it just had a really nice ring to it. Yeah. If I was going to go and do that, and at this point I wasn't thinking anything like that, but I was like, if I was hypothetically going to do that, I 
needed it to have a start and an end date. It needed to be a, a defined project rather than kind of going on and on and on for years indefinitely. And I wanted it to be a fixed end point. So I set myself the goal of my 25th birthday, which was pretty much exactly a year, which worked out as one work experience placement every two weeks. And articulating that to your parents. Mm. So that I, I think maybe it makes it a bit easier if you'd kind of framed it as it's got a time limit exactly. on it, I'm doing this, rather than going, I actually just want to discover a bit in my career and I don't know where it will take me. There must be something in you that wanted to kind of projectize it a little bit, to put a bit of control over something that was a very unknown Absolutely. No, that was exactly why I set it up the way that I did, both for trying to convince family and friends, but also trying to sell it to future employers. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that I could get a job when I did finish. Yeah. And I thought having a start and an end date, having a website, having a blog, having social media channels, I was hoping to be able to demonstrate all the transferable skills that I'd learned just purely from doing the project, let alone from doing the placements, that I'd then be able to sell to a future employer. Um, So that was very intentional in the setup, yeah. I think it's really smart. A lot of people will explore, we call it career possibilities, and we do encourage people to think about what their career possibilities are and where they can go. But actually, you had sort of got your plan B was kind of running in parallel whilst you're exploring. You're getting all this content and you mitigated the impact of people saying, oh, well, are you bouncing around from job to job because you don't know what you want to do? I think it's a very smart way of doing it, that project idea and kind of documenting it and really thinking through your transferable skills. Yeah, I think it was. It would have been a very easy criticism and a very fair criticism to make. And it was something that I was obviously immediately challenged with the first time I started pitching this idea to friends and family just to test the water. That's one of the very first things they said was nobody will ever hire you again. And so I sort of sat back, <laughs> went back to drawing board and thought, OK, well, how can I design this so that I mitigate that risk because that is a very obviously large risk that I want to avoid as much as possible. And I really did go into the project thinking I will end up picking one of these and then that is what I will go off and do. That was entirely the intention, though, of course, that's not what I've ended up doing in any capacity. (laughs) Um, But that, yeah, wasn't predictable at the start. I definitely think we should conclude with a where where are you now kind of on from the book. We'll leave leave you hanging on till the end. We'll leave a little bit of tease. So one of the things when I was reading the book that struck me was around confidence. So actually our starting podcasts that we did were all around confidence gremlins and some of the most common ones that I might get found out, imposter syndrome, I don't know enough. I mean, there's a raft of them and that was a starting point of our Squiggly Queer podcast was talking about those with people and what struck me when I was reading your book was that every situation was kind of like the perfect setup for any of those confidence gremlins you were constantly going into jobs that you hadn't done before that you probably didn't know how to do that you potentially didn't have the same skills as some other people who were there for the long term how did you cope with that from a confidence perspective and I guess the second question in my mind is what can we take away from that for the people listening that they can maybe apply to themselves in their careers? So I would definitely say that for the vast majority of my life, I was not a confident person in any capacity. Mm. All those things that you were listing, imposter syndrome, things like that, I, I have and have had and have had to try to shut down in my head as often as you could imagine. But going through the process of doing this year was what challenged them and it was what changed them and I find myself up against those challenges less and less and less mm-hmm. and to be honest I think it was going through the process of doing so many different things so the first two or three I absolutely was facing every single gremlin every single day but by four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve <laughs> all of a sudden it wasn't so much of an issue because I'd done it enough times that 
I knew that it worked fairly similarly every time I went to a new workplace. You learn, like any other skill, you learn how to adapt quickly, how to bond with people very, very quickly, how to become as personable as you can be so that you can slot yourself into mm. this new working environment. You can make friends very quickly. You can bond with people. You know what the questions are to ask. So I drew up a list of questions that... I tended to ask to everybody that I was speaking to, whether that was for a formal interview for my blog or whether that was just to ask about their career when I was in the workplace and I just was curious about what that person did and what the job was like. And so I always had a foundation to build on and I always had a, li a list of questions that I could quite simply sit down and say, OK, well, this is the start of our conversation. I think it also helped that I was very open with the project. Mm -hmm. Whenever I approached a company, I told them exactly what I was doing. I gave them a link to my website. I explained everything in detail about what I would like from them, what they could expect from me. So it was a very open arrangement and every company knew what they were getting themselves into and that meant that they were very open to what I was trying to do. And, and so all, all those kind of gremlins that you would usually mm. go into in starting a job, I guess I tried to remove them as much as I possibly could mm -hmm through different mitigating strategies. So whether that's preparing interview questions in advance or being really, really open about what it was that I was doing. Yeah, and kind of, I guess, not coming out of pretending you're an expert. Quite the opposite. I, I think humility was definitely a key part of that because I absolutely, obviously, is not an expert in any capacity in any of the jobs that I did. But it was recognising that all the other people in the room were the experts. And I was just wanted to learn as much as I could from then both for myself, but also for the readers and followers that I'd inadvertently started to gather yeah. um, along the way. And so it was. I wanted it to be, uh, my website, to be a bank of resources on 25 different types of careers. And each of those profiles ended up writing up in the end of all the chapters in the book. So yeah. to try and give people an idea into 25 quite unusual careers. Yeah, I um, love careers that in the book. Like. Maybe, maybe just talk about a couple, of, like the most extreme in terms of unusual. I really like that piece in the book where you, you were flipping through your story but then there'd be also a profile of what it was like to be I don't know like a photographer but you talk about some of the ones that are kind of yeah yeah well the the very first one I did was one of the most unusual because it was archaeology and I called up my old archaeology department at my old university I did one module in my first year at uni and asked rather cheekily if they had any excavations that I could go along and sort of take part in, sort of thinking that they might offer me maybe two days somewhere in the UK. And they turned around and said, we actually really need somebody to go to Transylvania in two <laughs> weeks' time. It's not really the sort of thing you say no to. You say yes and figure it out later. I and mean, they had a grant to cover all of my costs, all of my expenses, like my airfare, my accommodation, my food, everything. And so I didn't need to pay for anything, which for me, obviously at the time, was wonderful. And so I said yes, and I quickly Googled where exactly Transylvania was, and I didn't know. <laughs> it was in Romania, it turns out. And two weeks later, I got on a plane and, and flew out to the Carpathian Mountains in the <laughs> middle of August um, to work on an uh, excavation that was of a Roman palace under the, the hypercourse system, so the underfloor heating system, which is a really good thing to excavate because people drop things down the cracks okay. and that's what you want to kind of look at, that's what you want to find. And we just saw, we found all sorts of things from, you know, coins to hairpins and really personal items and 
it connected you with history in a really unique way that mm -hmm. I'd never experienced before. To be the first person to pick something out of the ground for 2,000 years, to be the first person to see or touch an item for 2,000 years, really, you felt sort of the weight of history. Is so, I really didn't want to go home. You were like, oh, oh, no, God, I've, got, I've, I've committed to doing 25 jobs. Yeah. And I, I quite like this one. I'd like to stay doing this one. That happened more. quite a lot. That ah, really did happen quite a lot. There was many jobs that I, I felt that I could have stayed and done. But the whole point of the project was to not stop at the first one. Yeah. Because that, I think, is what we do in life generally with our careers. We tend to just do the first thing we try, yeah. uh, which I think has led to quite a lot of the problems that people experience with unhappiness in the workplace. So it was the point was to make sure I hit, hit that hit 25. Yeah, despite it. And you kind of, you know, careers are very long. You can kind of hopefully go back to some of those things you enjoyed. Just to go back on the point around confidence. So I think you talked about when you kind of got to job 11, job 12, job 13, actually some of those confidence gremlins, you were able to overcome them. What we find when we talk to people is that a lot of their confidence gremlins are based on a lot of assumptions about what people will think. So, for example, if you have a fear of being too young, it might stop you from applying for jobs or going for things because you think other people are going to think that I'm maybe overconfident, I'm too young, and you have I, this... Yeah, definitely experienced that one. <laughs> ...this cycle of things. And what struck me was maybe by forcing yourself to put yourself in situations where you were facing your confidence gremlins, you were testing some of those assumptions and realising that they maybe weren't true, that other people weren't thinking that some of the things that were going around your mind about you and your career and where you were and what you knew or didn't know. That's exactly the case. I think it's it's similar to how you treat um, a phobia of spiders is exposure to spiders. Yeah. And that's exactly what, what I found. Um, so one example of that is I've for as long as I can remember, had an absolute phobia of public speaking and absolutely hated it and would avoid it at all possible costs. I now, part of what I do, I'm a public speaker. I yeah. do that for a living. It's where I earn most of my income, in fact. So that was one of the things that I completely inadvertently ended up testing myself and practising and doing because people, schools particularly, kept asking me to come in and speak to their pupils to tell them my story. And... At first, I was absolutely horrendous at it. I was really awful, shaking and sweating and stuttering and all those sort of things. But yeah. then the more you do it and the more you face up to it, the easier and easier it got. And also I found being, I guess, in quotes, um, the expert in the room and talking about your own personal experiences is much, much easier than talking about something that you actually aren't an expert in the room of or that you're surrounded by people who are mm. also experts that you feel could challenge you and really call you up on those issues. And so I found by kind of over-preparing and making sure that I am the expert in the room. There is nobody that could turn around and say, what about this? Have you thought about that? All the challenges that I face for the project and the work that I've done, I've kind of heard them all now. And I, I have a fixed response to all of those divisive challenges that, yeah. that um, and some of them are fair that um, I'm kind of put up against. And so I kind of have learned how to deal with that. And I'm sure it might be quite an annoying response to say practice, but yeah. I could not emphasise it enough because you're quite right. It does mean that you face up to those assumptions in the same way that if it was a phobia of spiders or heights, kind of doing it over and over again, all of a sudden you become desensitised to it and you learn how to deal with it and how to grow from it. On the uh, difficult questions when you're presenting thing, I did this tip. We have a daily squiggly careers tip that we do on Instagram and I shared this with people a while ago. So sorry if you're listening and, and you've heard it, but it really sticks with me. I used to work at Virgin Head Office and we had Richard Branson come in one day and he was talking about his career and there were about 30 of us all with him just talking about it. The questions varied from what do you shampoo your hair with to some political thing that was quite challenging. There were quite a wide variety of questions and some of them were more difficult than others. And he had a really good tactic of when he got a 
difficult question, he'd pause for a second and say, hmm, really interesting. What do you think about that? Or that's really interesting. What's your perspective on it? And it put the question back onto the person because generally they already have a view. They're asking you a difficult question because they've already got a view of what the outcome is. And it put it back on them. It gave him time to think. And it was just so slick. And I tried it at a conference I was speaking at towards the end of last year on the future of work. And somebody asked me a question that I had absolutely no idea. It was some political government statute and what did I think were the implications of it on a global level and I was like I have no idea and rather than leaping into a waffly response which I am sometimes tempted to Mm. do I just recalled at the moment when I'd seen that happen when Richard Branson did it and I said oh you know really interesting question what's your perspective on that where are you coming from and he talked ad nauseum for about five minutes but in that time I kind of got what the crux of the question was it wasn't really what he was asking about and he'd given me the time to think about a much more informed response so I feel like you can't prepare for every difficult question but you can prepare those types of responses to them that's a really good piece of advice that's something that I I use as well and it works a treat Mm -hmm. Um, and it does it gives you that space and that time to breathe and think and and sometimes yeah exactly understand what it is they're actually trying to Mm -hmm. ask you as opposed to what it seems like they might be or sometimes people aren't really sure what they're trying to ask and it allows you both to kind of collect your thoughts a little bit before actually having that more informed discussion that is helpful to everybody else as well. So stamp of approval for, yes, for that tip. absolutely. Stamped. Another thing when I was reading the book I was having to think about was strength. So we talk a lot about strengths with people and how actually if you can understand what you're good at, particularly what you're great at, so you try to get people to get to what their super strengths are and then connect that with the work they're doing, they are more likely to have a bigger impact in those roles and also to be happier at work. It's kind of a big part of what we do. And what struck me was that there are potentially some advantages and disadvantages to the how squiggly you were in that year in the context of your strengths, which I was really interested to get your thoughts on. I was thinking actually doing that many different jobs allowed you to see where there was a lot of consistency in where you added value and what you did best because it would show up presumably quite quickly yeah. and you could trade on that from, yeah, from job to job and you'd see it consistently. But then I was also thinking, is there a disadvantage in that actually some of your strengths are nurtured in the jobs that you're in. So, for example, if I've got a strength in project management, it's because I was a project manager for a year. I wouldn't have been good at that if I hadn't spent a longer amount of time in it. So I'm just interested in your thoughts on how did that experience help you develop your strengths? And in terms of being a squiggly person, do you think there are any disadvantages to becoming great at something when you're when you're moving around different roles? I guess so. I see it now is I specialise not in industry specific knowledge but in skills so Mm. I'd say now I specialise in communications both in terms of written and verbal and instead of aiming to be a high achiever so say being a project manager within a specific industry I'm aiming now to be a wide achiever so to have a portfolio career so to apply that skill set to multiple industries over a period of time in parallel or kind of one after the other so portfolio careers having you know multiple careers through part-time freelance contract work um, at the same time which is what I have now Mm -hmm. and I think doing all those different jobs they allowed me to identify what my strengths were and there were things that I didn't think were my strengths when I started out I there were things that I'd like to have explored further but I didn't actually know whether they were my strengths or not and I take your point about needing that experience to start building specialist skills and I absolutely agree with that as well I think the point of the year was not to gain in-depth experience Mm. the point of the year was to kind of 
dip my toe, I guess, so to speak, to say, is this something I want to explore further or is this something that is not for me? As I've said before, I really recognise that obviously I'm not an expert in any of the things that, that I did for two weeks as sort of a work shadowing placement, but they were enough for me to know whether it's something I want to know more about mm. or not. And so I learned that I want to know more about using my communication skills. That's something I want to um, learn further. And I'm not sure yet perhaps what industry I might apply that to or industries, but I know that that's the skill set that I'm best at and that I enjoy most. And those do not always cross over mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. really need to. But one of the other things that I learned that I would add to kind of those categories that you were talking about is working environment. And I think that is massively overlooked. And I think when we thrive in a working, in a workplace, in a job, a part of that is down to the working environment and recognising what environments that you thrive in mm. or do not thrive in is just as important as the skills that you're using and the strengths that you have. So I learned that I thrive best in really small organisations. So whether that's completely as self-employed or in kind of a startup type environment, as opposed to a 400,000 strong massive mm -hmm. corporate organisation. I learned that actually I don't work that well in those sorts of organisations. I learned that I work well in things with a flat hierarchical structure as opposed to something that's really kind of strictly hierarchical. So environments that emphasise being innovative and creative, those things work really well for what I do as well or how I work best, mm. um, as well as things like variety, um, which is really, really important to me. And I learned mm. that and it's not the best thing about me, but I learned that I get bored easily. Mm -hmm. I, I really need kind of a continuous intellectual challenge doing different things day in, day out to do the best work that I can and to be the best that I can because I've done the opposite and I've seen that it doesn't work. I don't mm -hmm. work that well that way around. So it's being as hyper aware as you can of all these different sort of aspects. And so in the book, I kind of break it down into three parts. So there's the traditional skills, as we've sort of talked about, yep. there's working environment. And then the third one is... Or what do you want out of work? And I think all too often we flip it and we kind of look at, OK, well, how do I fit into this job? How do I fit into this job spec? Whereas I think we need to be looking at it the other way around and think, well, how does this job fit me and mm -hmm. fit what I want? So for me, I'm very driven by finding purpose. So feeling that I'm making some sort of contribution, a positive impact on society in some way. And that was the reason that I joined the civil service to begin with. And it informs pretty much everything that I do now. It's to try and help others mm -hmm. um, and figuring out what that is for you and making sure that that informs your career choices too I think is really really critical and I think you've had this um, amazing year of all these different experiences where you can draw that from and I think if people are listening and thinking I'm not in a position where I can take a year to go and explore that you still had your career up till this point so there will have still been moments in your career when you felt motivated and you felt that you were being at your best and there will have been other moments in your career when you won't have felt that and you'll have felt that you weren't doing a great job and you weren't enjoying what we were doing but potentially through the lens that Emma was talking about there and thinking about okay well what's skills was I using or not using in those moments? What working environments was I thriving in or actually just surviving in? And trying to glean some of the insights that Emma did in order to uh, inform kind of your next moves. And the other thing that I would add to it as well as if you're not in a position to kind of move around so much, maybe it's a confidence thing, maybe it's a financial thing, whatever it would be, 
From Sarah and I's experience, having side projects has been such a valuable way to gain some of the learning that Emma talked about in a very safe way. So Amazing If started as a side project over five years ago. I run something called the New Work Network, which is a side project, and it helps me to learn with different people, use my strengths in different contexts. And it's just a way that you can gain some of the insights that, that maybe Emma has gained about your career in a way that might work for people. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And I guess I've written the book to be as relatable mm. as it possibly can. I am absolutely not suggesting that everybody quits their job in a blaze of glory and spends a year doing 25 jobs. Yeah. I think that would be obviously <laughs> incredibly unrealistic for the vast majority of people. But what I do suggest in the book is where do you find those corners of time for short-term work experience placements? I'm talking two days. Yeah. I think perhaps using annual leave is a really good way to do that because you want to quit your job anyway. It's early in the new year. Your annual leave's just restarted. Take two days to try something that you've always wondered about and you've never been sure. Test it out for yourself without any real risk to your current job or losing things financially and I, I'm not gonna lie this is it's hard it's hard yeah. it's really hard work and evenings Just, weekends lunch times all of those corners of time and finding it whenever you can to have networking meetings or coffees yeah to sit down with somebody else who is an expert in the field you're interested in and say, well, what's it like to live in your shoes, both the good and the bad? And it's just as important to know the bad as well as the good. I love that suggestion. I think it's so practical. Like, take two days of your holiday. And again, Sarah and I have taken loads of our holiday to have done what we do. It's just kind of part of the trade you make, I guess, for learning. So how should someone, if someone's like, okay, I like what you're saying, I could do something like you've done with the two-day thing, use some of my holiday, how do you advise people to approach the ask of like, so if I'm going, let's say I'm interested in the archaeology or whatever it would be, writing a book or whatever. How do you advise someone to approach the ask? And did you ever get a no? I got hundreds of no's. <laughs> and I started to think about it in the way of, well, if I haven't had 30 no's by now, then I haven't tried it hard enough. <laughs> I haven't sent out enough emails. I think you have to expect rejection as part of this, as you would for applying to any job. And that's to be expected. And that's okay. That is fine. That doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It mm. just means you haven't found the right organisation yet. The vast majority I got through cold calling. So quite yeah. literally sending emails out into cyberspace to people I didn't know and hoping they'd get back to me. I found targeting the smallest companies I could got the highest response rates. I think when you're targeting larger organisations with HR admin chains, you're coming up against a lot of red tape. I think it's just far harder to do. That's not to say it's impossible, I just it's harder to do. So yeah, I would say definitely target smaller organisations. Yeah. I also got several of them through networking. So I contact people through LinkedIn. Yeah. I used my um, university's alumni service and just quite literally put out Facebook messages. I'd use uh, professional um, networking groups on Facebook. So there's one called Creative Networking, which is based in the southeast, and it's a really, really strong network. And quite literally put up a message and say, does anybody know anybody that works in Blur? This is what I'm looking to do. And I found people got back to me really, really quickly and really positively as well. I was overwhelmed by how kind people were and how generous they were with their time and how willing to help they were. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of expect, half expected that everyone would turn around and completely ignore everything that I did. But that's not what I found to be the case at all, really. I also racked my brains about friends of friends of friends of friends and asked yep. literally everybody I could think of who might know somebody who do, know somebody who does whatever it was. So I I got the first, I think, four or five placements tied down before I even left my job, before I even handed in my notice, because I wanted to make sure that I tested yep. the theory first and proved the concept 
one of the very early ones I got was through Twitter. Um, yeah. I quite literally put out a tweet saying, does anybody know any farmers I could work <laughs> with? <laughs> so I didn't know any farmers, funnily enough, living in London. And within like, How many farmers did you get replied to? Um, to be honest, I, I said yes to the first one that got back to me, <laughs> uh, who happened to be an alpaca farmer in Cornwall. <laughs> amazing. Well, exactly. It was amazing. It was absolutely fantastic. It was one of the best placements I did, and it was through Twitter. I love how honest you are about that, because people might be thinking, oh, I bet Emma had like a black book of people to keep oh, in no, contact. You're like, all. no, 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 I just asked a lot of people yeah. in a lot of different places, yeah. and I went to the first alpaca farmer that got in touch. Um, it's, it's the honest it's Oh, completely. Um, I didn't get a single one through parents' contacts or anything like yeah. that. They were really all through just thinking as creatively and outside the box as I possibly could and not being put off when I hadn't figured it out after yeah. two days. It was kept going and going. Or when you got a no. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. Just, you just kept going. You've inspired me, actually. I feel like it definitely wouldn't be a radical sabbatical, but maybe the two-day, I need to give it a better title, but the not-so-radical sabbatical to think about what job would I be interested in exploring taking two days a holiday and actually just go and kind of shadowing I guess contributing yeah. however I could did you feel like at the end of it because I feel like the time that you spent with it was quite a lot about what you were taking out of it in terms of your learning did you feel that you had to contribute something back to them at the end of it like here are my insights here's a we would always use like a what work well even better if based on my experiences yeah well so I was writing up a blog post at the end of each placement that obviously I would share with them and kind of was really honest with what how I thought it had gone and had worked and so that led to some placements keeping in touch and loving me and others <laughs> I never heard from again um, but I think it was important to be really honest and I ended up, and again, I didn't start out with this being the intention at all, ended up contributing a lot in terms of social media management. And I found a lot of the businesses that I went to work for weren't using it to their full advantage. And it wasn't something I set out to become, I guess, an expert in, but setting up channels and managing accounts and creating content and all that sort of thing was something that I discovered that I had a bit of a talent for. Mm. Um, however, I think that that is true for basically everybody that's in the millennial or Gen Z bracket. I think it's something we very innately do. It's something we've grown up with, we do every day. But actually businesses that are perhaps run by people that are of an older generation don't have that skill set. Mm -hmm. So that's something that you can immediately contribute, that you have a basic understanding of, that the people that you're going to work with perhaps don't. I also found myself, and again, this was unintentional starting out, but became a bit of a habit. You get to understand what works well and what doesn't work well in certain environments. You get to see the same situations. I noticed a pattern of similar situations coming up again and again and being able to sort of step back, look at things a little bit more strategically and say, I've seen this over here in this completely unrelated industry and this is how they did it there and it uh, seemed really to work quite well. So I wouldn't go as far as to say I was acting as a consultant at all, but it was just drawing on experiences that I'd seen in other industries and being able to kind of step back and say, well, had you thought about it like this? Yeah. And just providing that completely different perspective, those fresh pair of eyes um, to try and avoid things like groupthink, which does happen and is an issue within quite a lot of industries, particularly within industries that are quite specialist. Yep. So you tend to hire the same pool of people again and recycle and recycle. Yep. Yep. Um, and you're bringing in that diversity of thought that exactly. actually got more and more diverse. It sort of became self-fulfilling, really, the more you did it. Exactly. It, it reminds me as well of um, we talk in our networking sessions and courses that we do around a model, which we used to call the give-get model, but someone came on our course and called it the career karma model, which is a much nicer <laughs> way. We should just get everybody else to name all of our models. But the premise of it is that if you can understand what you have to give so in, in your situation there you were thinking 
you know, what I have to give is that I've got social media expertise that I could do to help a business to build a community, for example. And if you understand what you want to get, so I want to learn about that industry, what skills it takes, what a day in the life looks like, then actually you can have a much more of a useful networking relationship with people because you're not just kind of going into it aimless. You've got that clarity. And so for anyone that's inspired by the slightly unradical sabbatical, better name TBC, maybe maybe <laughs> someone else in the community could, could name that for us, the same person that named the Career Karma, the idea of, first of all, being confident to ask in the way that Emma did and accepting that you might get quite a lot of no's and that's fine and asking lots of different places, being clear about what you want to learn and then maybe also thinking about what you could give at the end of it, whether it's the same, you know, it's the social media skills. For me, it might be some observations or I could potentially give some coaching to people in that organisation because that's a skill set that I have or, or do a training course for them. So you're sort of trading the learning experience with something you've got to contribute. Maybe that is something for people to reflect on. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So I'm aware our time is running short. I just one more one more thing I really want to talk to you about was about networking. All these different experiences must have really started to accelerate the amount of people that you now have in your network. As well as that piece that I just talked about there with maybe being clear about what you've got to give and what you want to get from people. I guess what did you learn about the strength of your network through this process that other people listening can maybe take away as a tip? Um, you're quite right. My network expanded exponentially very, very quickly just from the sheer volume of people that I was meeting. And mentors did pop up left, right and centre with people that I also would never have predicted would have been so engaged in what I was saying. So one of my, you know, men who mentors me even now, he was working at the British Council in their crisis management department, which is where I was doing a placement kind of father of two in his I think late 40s maybe early 50s and just resonated with what I was working on what my project was and all the things that I was talking about and he provided he was an excellent mentor and still is to this day he 
hooked me up with several other placements in the end. So all the ones that I then went on to do uh, in the police. So I went to do work with police dogs and police horses and with um, the counterterrorism unit as well. And setting me up with contacts and expanding my network further and kind of advising me on, on different directions I could take it in and informal coaching, I guess yep. I'd probably call it. And what became interesting, and he's said this to me very recently at the book launch, was he turned around and was like, well, I see this as a mutual mentorship. Mm. I see this as almost as a reverse mentorship. I'm getting just as much out of this as I think you are. And we're both we're learning two ways and kind of learning that mentorships don't have to just be one directional. Both parties have something to give, even if you don't quite see it. And I, I hadn't really thought about it like that, but he kind of turned around and said, I'm learning just as much from you as you are from me. And it was a really, really positive relationship and kind of understanding that age isn't necessarily a barrier to knowledge mm -hmm. uh, or ideas. It really can be two-way, and so they're quite often called reverse mentorships yeah. now. And I think they're increasingly popular, and it's something that I've ended up with plenty of people to bounce ideas off of for different projects and people that will um, have the honesty to challenge me and say, well, why on earth are you doing it like that? Have you thought about this? Or, mm -hmm. or kind of provide those challenges and that sounding board in a bit of a safe space before being put up against it in you know the public forum or, yeah. or whatever it might be. Networking as well links to the, for me at least, it linked to that confidence point that you were talking about earlier in that I used to find networking incredibly difficult. I'm very shy. And so I used to still do go to obviously a lot of networking events and the way I used to get around it, and I still do, I go to another person who is standing at the edge of the room looking very <laughs> uncomfortable. And that's the person I go and start speaking to because I know that they are feeling just as uncomfortable as I am yeah. about the situation. And then I feel OK. Yeah. Um, and you're there for each other and you get to relax. You have an interesting conversation with an interesting person. And then you take a deep breath and you walk forward into the rest the of the room. One. Uh, I also heard about always go to the odd numbered group. So whether it's one person <laughs> on their own or if it's a group of three, because there'll be somebody that's like a little bit isolated in that trio that you can potentially start the conversation with. So tactical tips for networking at events. I loved what you said, though, about actually mentoring. Think about challenging people as well as supportive people. Think about reverse mentoring and also appreciate that mentors value being a mentor I think that some people are so grateful and they're like oh they give me all their time and but actually the mentor's getting a lot back as well they're getting the reward from helping you to grow and develop they will hopefully also be learning from you hearing about maybe different situations because they're hearing about your organization and it's I think if you think about mentoring as a two-way process you can have a much richer conversation absolutely that's one of the things I think I found as well uh, or was told by quite a lot of the people that um, I ended up having sort of networking meetings with was that they felt honoured a little bit, flattered to have been asked mm -hmm. to talk about their careers, to have been sort of identified and somebody said, you seem really valuable in what you do. It's kind of a, I guess, a legitimising thing for somebody to contact you and say, I look up to you so much, I'd really like to hear more about what you do. And so a lot of people came and said that to me and thought, yeah. felt really touched that I'd asked and were more than happy and more than willing to be generous with their time which I think was an, an ongoing trend throughout the entire project. Well, I think you have been hugely curious, very brave, and like you've built bags of confidence. And I think it's been really super, super interesting to talk to you. I'm definitely going to go away and I'm going to have a think about 
what would I do for two days if nothing was stopping me? And I'm going to try and make that happen. Sarah will be listening to this thinking, oh my gosh, where's she gone? She's gone to go be a zookeeper or whatever it is that I end up doing for two days. But I think, yeah, super inspiring. And I hope that people who have listened have been able to take some actionable things they can do in terms of their confidence, thinking about their strengths and their network as well. What we're also going to do is we are going to get hold of a copy of Emma's book, uh, which you can buy in lots of different places. Probably Amazon is the quickest way. You can get it tomorrow if you go to Amazon Prime. But we are also going to give a copy away on Instagram at the Amazing If Instagram. So we'll get it. All you've got to do, we'll put a picture of myself and Emma holding the book, should you want to know what it looks like before you get it. And if you put a comment on um, the at Amazing If Instagram, what we'll do is a week after that picture's gone live, we'll choose a winner and then we'll send you Emma's copy of the book. But for everybody else, head over to Amazon. Anywhere else? What about the website as well? Uh, yeah, it's at my website, which is 25before25.co.uk. Mm-hmm. I think it's also available in Foils bookshops and other bookshops to come. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much. So thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope you have um, enjoyed this. As ever, if you've got any suggestions for future podcast topics, please do send them our way. You can contact us at getintouchatamazingif.com. I have talked about Instagram. That's also where we do our daily careers tip. And you can head over to Twitter, where we are at amazing underscore if, and that's where we share lots of different articles. So we will be back with you soon. I'll be joined with Sarah, uh, and we'll see you then. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.